Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. Welcome to season eight of Period Story. I'm so excited to start the season off with a fantastic guest, Annie Ridout. Annie is an author, a journalist, ghostwriter, poet, and life coach. In this episode, Annie talks about her sober curious journey. She talks a lot about her writing career, Substack, and the different ways she's able to earn an income, her fascinating new ghostwriting career, and her new podcast, Home. And of course, she shares the story of her very first period. Hi, Annie. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. I am such a fan of your writing, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it, your career. But first, let's start by going into the story of your first period. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, do you know, I've never been asked this before. And so I've been reflecting back um, and I found it quite scary starting my period. So my mum is and was very organised and she had put together this little bag of sanitary bits. I don't remember at this point, I think I was 12 maybe. I don't remember learning about periods at school. I'm sure that we did. Perhaps we had some like PSE lessons, but I wasn't wanting to hear it. So my mum put together this bag of sanitary stuff. And then I remember coming home from school one day, going to the toilet and seeing blood in my knickers and completely panicking. I did quickly realise what was going on, but I didn't know what to do. So I took my clothes off and I put on a dressing gown and then I must have called my mum and started, you know, she must have shown me how to use the sanitary towels or whatever I would have used first. But I remember feeling really panicked. It didn't feel exciting. It didn't feel calm. I felt like, I, I don't want this. So did you, you felt panicked, but did you know what was, when you saw it, did you know what, what it was? Yeah, I think I saw it and thought, and, and panicked. I saw blood panicked and then instantly was like oh this is that thing that this is a period this is what they talk about okay um, and then you found your mom and then what did she, what did she say she was uh she maybe looked slightly not surprised what would the word be um I, I guess she was kind of following my energy so I I was panicked and then she was oh well yeah this is this is your period um but I think her mom hadn't spoken about any of this stuff with her they were um, Roman Catholic. Her mum had given her this book on uh, sex being a sin when she was younger. And this was the kind of, <laughs> this was how she was raised. And there was lots of Roman Catholic shame um, with everything to do with women, body, sex. And so my mum was very different and she was a hippie in the swinging 60s, 70s. And my parents were much more open with us. But still, there's that generational I guess what your mum teaches you if your mum's around to teach you is then you sort of absorb it and then use some of that as you go on to teach your daughter maybe so it wasn't totally relaxed it wasn't a celebration 
there was some panic. Okay. Yeah. And that kind of panicked feeling that you had, did that continue across your period experience as you kind of had a few more periods, maybe as you went through your teenage years? So I can't remember then how regularly they, I just don't remember. All I remember, the next stage um, that's in my mind was when my friend said, have you used a tampon? Tampons are great. And so she told me how to use a tampon. And then I thought this girl was really cool. So I was like, if she's doing, I'm going to do that too. And so I got into using tampons. And then it wasn't until after I had children that I was like, I hate tampons. I don't want to be shoving something up me, thanks, every month. Um, and I and I never use tampons now, but make, well, I'm sure we'll come on to that. So that was the next stage was my peers. So I'd had, it had happened to me. I'd called on my mum. She said, yeah, that's right. That's what's happened. We didn't talk about it again at all, as far as I can remember. And then it was, then I turned to my friends. And then probably I started to feel more comfortable and to accept it once my friends were talking about it with me and we were all in it together. So not really having any further conversations with your mom and then relying on your friends and your friends relying on you and having that kind of conversations that, you know, I could relate to because I was a teenage girl. So I kind mm. of relate to that. Were there things that you learned about your period, your menstrual cycle and all of that then that you look back and you think, God, you know, that wasn't quite that wasn't quite right, or you think, well, that was spot on. I don't think I had any idea why we have periods. I think I was given the the, the stuff to deal with it, the the physical, the the sanitary towels, tampons, whatever. Um, but I I didn't know why I was having periods. And then when I eventually started having sex, I still didn't know that there was only there was this window of ovulation. It was all, it's crazy <laughs> to think about now how disconnected I was from my body and my cycle, but no one was telling me. We just, we didn't talk about it as much back then. And what I find a lot is that once, uh, I've seen this a lot, is that women, they start thinking about their fertility when they're trying to have children, or maybe yeah. they're thinking about coming off the pill or, you know, they start like kind of exploring that space a little bit more that's when they start thinking okay actually I need to learn a little bit more about this like for certainly for me when I me and my husband we decided that we were going to try for a baby I was like oh okay I need to know more about ovulation because it just didn't really like I didn't think about it mm. what was it like for you um yeah the same and then I I because I think I thought I didn't really stay on the pill. I did it a couple of times, but I never stayed on for long. So I didn't have that kind of coming off the pill thing. Um, but I thought as soon as I started having sex, I thought that having sex once you became pregnant. I didn't know that there was this small window. So I took the morning after pill a few times, definitely. And then when I met my husband and when we decided to have children, I think I can't exactly remember, but I think probably I still thought, still didn't even know about this ovulation window and until I didn't get pregnant. And then I started to look into it. Maybe I'd sort of heard about ovulation. I don't remember much of what I learned in school. I learned it. I did my exams. I did quite well. And then it just left the information left my mind. So maybe I did learn in science, <laughs> in biology, <laughs> some, some of this stuff. I don't remember it though. But then when I did start to learn about ovulation when I was going to try and have a baby. 
I found it quite amazing looking at the um, changes in my body and seeing the, uh, you know, what comes out of you when you're ovulating and the different like um, textures and thinking, oh, I have noticed this before, but I never knew it had anything to do with my cycle. And I was quite fascinated by that and excited because I wanted, I was desperate to have a baby. So when ovulation came around and I, my body started changing, I was really excited that there was a chance I might become pregnant. I, it t- did take a, a while. But um, yeah, ov- ovulation became exciting. Yeah. And what when you think about your experience of your period and your menstrual cycle now, how would you describe it? I think I, you know, one of the reasons that I didn't talk about my periods much when I was younger is because they were fairly um, uneventful. So I didn't have any pain. I didn't have cramps. Like nothing like that, as far as I can remember. I don't know if I I was that moody or anything like that. So it was just the monthly bleed that I dealt with, and I could I could do that. Um, as I started having children, my periods became a lot more painful, and that's when I started to think, "This is a pain. I don't want to. I don't want to have this pain every month. I don't know why they became more painful, but they did. And so, you know, a week before, I'll feel tearful and I'll have stomach cramps. It does slightly depend on my lifestyle around the time in the in the lead up to my period. So if I'm eating really healthily, doing lots of exercise, not drinking too much alcohol, that definitely makes a difference. Um, But yeah, my periods have definitely got harder as I've got older and particularly since having children. And now I'm not having any more children. So I just think it's a bit unfair that I have to have them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't want an early menopause necessarily, but I feel like it just feels a bit unfair that my body's still preparing to make these babies, but I'm done. Yeah. And when you think about your 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 children and then how you learned about your your period and that kind of brief conversation that you had with your mom, what would you do differently? Like what well, how would you have that or would you do it differently? Mm. So I've got a girl, my eldest is a girl, then I've got two boys. My eldest has started asking questions. I think they do more in school now. So she's nine and she's started saying, is it, is it painful when you have a period, when you bleed? And we talk about that really openly. We're very open with each other. And I've got her a little bag of like reusable sanitary towels and the kind of things I use for her. And it's all like nicely, pat- nice patterns and colors. It feels like a fun pack. And there's the one I bought. I can't remember the name of the brand now. Um, it's got a, a little diary that you can write how you're feeling and, and things. So she loves all that sort of stuff. But she is a bit embarrassed about this bag that's hidden in her cupboard for when she needs it, which might be a few years yet. Um, so we're very open. And then with my boys, they see when I'm on my period because they're always in and out of the toilet and I don't hide the blood. I don't hide my sanitary towels. I use like toweling pads and they see it and they say there's blood. And then I say, yeah, I'm on my period and I talk really openly. So. They have an understanding of periods and women's bodies and cycles that probably a lot of four and six-year-old boys (laughs) don't have. Um, And I'm glad of it because one day if they get into a relationship with a woman, I want them to understand. And not even that, like as they get older and their sister starts her period and girls around them, their peers start their periods, I want them to understand what that means. Yeah, I think it's I think it's so important. I have a 10-year-old son and he hears me talking about this all the time and you know, mm-hmm. he's seen my book and all of that. But 
it was funny yesterday. Um, so there's a brand that I did some work with and they have a campaign around um, delineating the vagina and the vulva. And they sent me a shirt and it just said vulva on the front. And I just threw it on. And I said to him, oh, do you know the difference between a vagina and a vulva? And he said, I don't need to know that. I'm a boy. And I said, I laughed and I said, <laughs> I said, well, you know, you do need to know the difference because, you know, you have a girlfriend and, you know, and all of that, you might have daughters, you know, and it's mm. important to know the names through different body parts. Um, so it's, it's funny thinking about these things and how, like, you know, you say four, you're four and your six year old probably know a bit more, but I think that's really important just to, of course, in an age appropriate way, be really honest with them about these experiences so that mm. it removes some of the shame out of the yeah. conversation. Yeah. And so it's not, and they still, they see blood and say, oh, blood. <laughs> um, and which is a normal response because blood is often you've hurt, is when you've hurt yourself. Yeah. So for them to be able to sit and for me to explain that I'm not in pain and this is what, you know, most women's bodies do, um, it, it does feel important, but it's very much the shame piece that I'm trying to change for sure yeah. and so in the little kit that you made for your daughter you mentioned that you put um a toweling a toweling pad and that that's what you use so can you talk a little bit about the switch that you made from tampons to pads yeah so I after having children um and I had quite long complicated births forceps lots of damage um to, to my body um positive experiences but just felt lots of intervention I didn't want to use tampons I didn't want any I didn't want to be putting anything up inside myself that I didn't need to um and so I and I probably had used pads like maternity pads after I had the babies I suppose so maybe that reminded me that pads exist and so then I started I probably started using sanitary towels and then I started hearing about these reusable ones because they're so plasticky which obviously is bad for the environment, but also for your body. I've got quite sensitive skin. I get like eczema and psoriasis, not around my vaginal area, but um, I guess I just, and is they're sweaty, the plasticky sanitary towels, it's just kind of sweaty and smelly. So I thought I used the toweling ones and just ordered a, a bunch from Amazon probably. Um, and then I just ordered loads more. They're really comfortable. They're like toweling, flannelly, material I never leak there I put them into my knickers and they pop up underneath and I, I just ordered so many that I never run out the only time I'll use uh, disposable sanitary towels is if I'm traveling so I've just been to London for the night I was on my period and I don't want to carry around bloody sanitary towels when I'm like going for a job interview so then, then I'll use disposable <laughs> but I if I'm going on holiday with my family for a week I will take with me and wash as I go so then I thought I'll get the same for my daughter. Um, I suppose, yes, uh, tampons are quite good if you want to go swimming, but now you can get those period bikinis. I haven't yet. I need to look into that, um, like the period pants for swimming. But I thought I'd just give her what I use because it feels like the most comfortable option. And then she'll speak to her friends and make up her own mind. But it's something. Yeah. But I did, I tried a moon cup and I was not into the moon cup. I found it so uncomfortable and the thought of having to like tip it out and all the mess just didn't appeal. I know a lot of women I know love them. 
Yeah, I do. I love them myself. Um, right. But it was actually really interesting that you say that because I was just, I just had a conversation with the CEO of a, um, a Metro Cup company and she was saying that that is actually one of the barriers that they see where it's this kind of with your with it's more tampons you're kind of there's a step away from handling the blood but with the cup you know it's you kind of you have to go deeper and get it and then all of that so they she talked about how you know that can be a barrier that um they face with new new users of the cup so you're Mm. definitely not alone in in feeling like that but it's really good that you found something that that works for you yeah and I just want something easy I feel like this is something I haven't chosen um I was okay with the cycle up until having babies and and so grateful that I could have children but post I feel like whatever is easiest and most comfortable is that's what I'll go for yeah and you mentioned that when you you change the way you eat or eat kind of in a more kind of whole way and you do more exercise you see a difference in your period and one thing that you've been writing about recently that I found really interesting is um so speaking of lifestyle changes is your kind of venture into I don't know if you would call it being sober curious or being sober I don't know what the label is that you're using but I find it really interesting to read your your journey and where you're going with that because I personally I haven't drunk in about six years and it's really made a difference to a lot of aspects to my health and well-being but it's the social side that it can be difficult even still so mm-hmm. I've lost friends because I don't drink anymore which it sounds so crazy to say out loud um but can you just say a little bit more about your experience? Because living in the UK where, you know, there's a study that came out that, you know, 35% of women binge drink at least once a week in the UK. So say, say a little bit more about your experience. Yeah, I'm definitely not sober. I'm sober curious. I go through stages of not drinking and I have, I can't remember when the first time I started. So I was raised, my parents drink. They don't have a problem with drinking, but it's very much part of our social uh, life as a family. We'd have friends around. My parents would drink a few bottles of wine on a Sunday afternoon with a roast. Um, not just the two of them, with a group of, of adults. And so as we got older, we started drinking and I just never questioned it at all. And I was shy and that probably made me drink more as a teenager because suddenly I'd have, I used to drink pints of beer with the boys. And suddenly I'd be really confident and that felt good. And that's dangerous because then uh, you feel worse after you've drunk and then you keep drinking and then you think the only way to have fun is to drink. And so, and I used to party a lot. I used to hit it really hard for like some years. I did a lot of raving and festivals and drinking and debauchery and everything else that comes with that scene. And then I guess I stopped drinking when I had, when I became pregnant three times. I drank a little bit when I was breastfeeding, but not much. Often I was doing some co-sleeping with my children. And um, so I was aware of um, of not being drunk ever. And then probably uh, definitely in the pandemic, when we first went into lockdown, like lots of people, we're all at home. We had a bit of Prosecco and it, 
then it started happening more often. And I'd never drunk every day. I drink at the weekends. I go to the pub, meet friends, have a drink. I'd never drunk on my own, didn't drink much at home and definitely didn't drink every day. And then suddenly in the pandemic, I was. So I eased off. No, I stopped for three months and I didn't drink anything. And it was kind of amazing. And I felt so energized and healthy and wholesome. But I also wasn't socializing because we were in, in and out of lockdowns. So it was easy. There were no parties. I was starting to see people, but there were no parties. And a lot of uh, my old friends actually aren't bothered about alcohol. So my like older, closer friends would never drop off if I stopped drinking because they're not that bothered anyway. But I did have a newer friend who I'd known a couple of years who I was really close to. And I remember she asked to go for a walk with me in one of the lockdowns. And she said, let's get really pissed on cocktails. And I said, I'd love to go for a walk with you. I'm not drinking, but let's still go. And she cancelled it. And <laughs> she didn't want to go for a walk. And I was so disappointed because I was so up for meeting her. And any time I wasn't drinking, that affected our friendship. There was another woman as well who I was pretty close with who liked to drink. If I ever wasn't drinking, I was out for that period and only back when I was drinking. And I have lost contact with both of those people since I left London, uh, which is kind of not surprising. So then, but then I did start drinking again. I didn't, I only stayed sober for three months, but I have periods where I feel I've been drinking too often, or maybe I'll have, I had a weekend, a friend came to stay and we drank a couple of bottles of wine and I don't drink a couple of bottles of wine with one other person very often at all. And it was way too much for me. And after that, I had a month off, didn't drink any alcohol. So I kind of come in and out of it. And I think I like to know that when it's not serving me and when it's not fun drinking alcohol, I can stop and I will. And I know how good it feels to stop. I'm not quite ready to completely um, close the lid on drinking socially because I sometimes find it really fun mm. and I do enjoy it. Um, and I like the taste of a really good glass of wine. So I might give up completely one day, but at the moment I'm just enjoying it enjoying drinking when I fancy it and enjoying having a slight rebellion because in so many ways, my life is dictated by my children and being a mother and trying to work. And there's so much that I'm trying to control all the time. And that's one thing that I'm, it, let, it helps me to let my hair down and just feel a bit wild for a couple of hours. And then I'm back to it, back to being mum. Yeah. I, um, I really relate to that idea of like letting your hair down and I do miss that side of side of it. Um, but, you know, it, for me, it was I, I had to stop re drinking for other reasons. It it's, was just I love the taste of like red wine in particular mm. so much. And it was just felt like I was going down this pathway where I was just a bad mother. I just didn't like the person I was becoming and mm. over all the time I just it, and then for me that triggered a lot of anxiety like be, I you know anxiety that was me and it was just I could just see the road and I said to myself okay I did three months off and then New Year's Eve came around we had some friends visiting and we had some drinks with them and it was really fun but I could feel those feelings starting to creep back in. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to knock this on the head, see how long I can go. And it became like a challenge with myself. I'm quite a competitive person. So it's competing with myself. 
Um, and I do miss it sometimes, I have to say. But I, for me, I just know that it just, I with red wine in particular, I just can't have one. And so just being able to see that, acknowledge that about myself and say, well, you know what? There are other ways to let your hair down. Not in the way that you used to. Like I was quite a partier as well, like festivals, clubbing, all of that. But, you know, there's a different different path. But I love hearing like other people's stories as well, because it's really important to be able to have a conversation about alcohol and Mm -hmm. not just it's so normalized in the UK. Yeah. Um, And that's something that I found. I'm Canadian, so I've lived here for 20 years, but. I found it so surprising when I moved over here, how it's just ever present in mm-hmm. celebrations, everything. Um, so, yeah, just thank you for sharing, sharing your story. Yeah, no, I find it interesting. I'm definitely noticing a shift. I had a friend who came over recently and she said, I've got this bottle of a sparkling red wine. Um, are, we, are you drinking? And I said, I'm actually not. And, you know, I had that moment of thinking, Shall I just drink? Because is it rude if she's she's brought this round? But I wasn't drinking at that time. And I'd made a commitment to myself to not drink for a month or something. And so I said, I'm actually not. And she said, actually, I don't want to drink either. Great. And we had an evening and we had dinner and had such a nice time. And it, and I didn't miss alcohol at all. And she was totally up for it. And I think it feels really important for me to have friends who are open-minded. I've got a, like a bunch of friends who don't drink at all completely teetotal and I love meeting with them because I know I don't even have to think about whether we're going to drink or not we're not I won't drink around if I'm one-on-one I won't drink with someone who's who's not drinking so I think the the conversation's opening up and people a lot more people are sober curious a lot of people feel relieved if they don't have to drink like in my circle and uh yeah I think I agree with you it's good to be hearing how people are feeling on it and not just accepting it as the only way to socialize yeah, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about your writing because you have such an interesting career. You know, you kind of have all of these different paths where you're a journalist, you've written books, you're a poet, you've created courses, you have a podcast, which we'll talk about later on. Um, and you're also a ghostwriter, which is so cool. And I want to talk a little bit about that shortly. Um, can you talk a little bit about your path and being going in all of these I and I don't mean this in a despairing Jing way all of because I'm the same but all of these different directions you know it kind Mm. of belies the conventional wisdom that we need to choose one thing and stick with it but that's not what you're doing and you seem to be quite successful at what you're doing so can you talk a little bit more about that sure um so I think I would have chosen one thing and stuck with it if it had worked. I think, I don't know, I may be someone, maybe those of us who have these um, careers with lots of different um, ways that we work, maybe actually that's because that suits our personality rather than because the income's not coming from where we want it to. But I I trained as a journalist. I did a, a master's in journalism, started to get into journalism, and then I was never earning enough money as a freelance journalist. So I became a copywriter and I was working full time as a copywriter until I had my first baby. Then I lost my job. And so then I was at home with the baby. I wanted to write. I had saved a bit of money for my maternity leave, but I wanted to, I wanted to keep working and needed to get back into work at some point. And so I did start doing more freelance journalism. And 
if that had really taken off and I was getting commissions all the time and earning a good living from it, that would be what I I would still be doing that now. But I got the odd commission and then I was trying to do other bits of work. I ended up doing bits of PR for people, which I kind of enjoyed because I knew how to to help them write a pitch and to get press coverage. It was very easy for me as a journalist and I'd done some work as an editor. So I knew exactly how to do it, but it wasn't my my sole calling to work in PR. And so I was doing bits of journalism and then I launched, I always was into blogging. I always had a blog, kind of like an online diary that I'd write. And then it always surprised me that anyone cared about what I was writing about, but there was always a bit of traffic. And then I launched a more... Um, I, I launched a platform called The Early Hour, which was for parents who were up early, and I was publishing an article every morning. And this was my way of publishing myself because I was pitching these ideas out, and sometimes I'd get a commission, but sometimes an idea would never happen. And it's really frustrating when you're full of energy for an idea, and then you're pitching out to these editors, and no one wants it because uh, it's not their area of interest. They don't think the timing's right. They don't read your email for whatever reason. So I thought if I create my own platform, I can publish myself and other people whenever I want. And the platform grew really quickly and there was loads of traffic. There was like hundreds of thousands of people visiting that website, but I never properly monetized it because the, the internet wasn't set up to monetize a content platform then as it is now with platforms like Substack, which is amazing. Um, and so, but off the back of creating my own website and articles. I did start getting more commissions from The Guardian and they would approach me and say, can you write this piece on early mornings? Can you write this piece on parenting? Red Magazine asked me to write about sex after having babies. And so it was really nice that the journalism was taking off more after launching my own platform that then kind of raised my profile, I suppose, so that people were seeing me, editors were seeing me more. Um, But it was still quite bitty. And then, but I was having children. So um, once I'd had my second baby, I got talking to an editor at Fourth Estate uh, Publishing. And it's a bit of a long story, which I won't go into, but basically I ended up getting a book deal to write Freelance Mum. I'd pitched another book and that one didn't happen, but we got on really well and decided to do a book teaching women how to freelance after they had children. And I never thought I'd go into nonfiction. I always hoped I'd become a novelist. Um, and but it was amazing to get a book deal with this incredible publisher, and I loved um, working with Michelle, my editor. And so this book came out, and then the thing people wanted more help on was the chapter about how to get press coverage for your business. So then I designed an online course, and then an unexpectedly, it was just lots of unexpected things happened. Suddenly that course took off. Loads of people signed up. I suddenly was earning like what felt to me like loads of money, because as a freelancer, it's just often so bitty for quite a while. And when you eventually find your thing, whether it's like your retainer client or your just the thing that works, that's the thing that worked for me financially. And then that became the business. And then I was running an online course business and my husband quit his job and he was running it with me. And then I was writing a second book alongside it on uh, called Shy. But I was feeling like I'm running this business financially, I'm exactly like in in my dream space financially, but it's pulling me away from writing because you can't be a full-time writer and be a full-time kind of business owner, entrepreneur. It's one, I think it's one or the other, or you can do bits of writing, but I was feeling like my heart is in writing 
journalism, nonfiction books. I got really into it and it lit nonfiction. Book writing is very close to journalism in the structure um, and the type of writing. And then online courses and doing a lot of marketing was felt like it was just in a different space. Um, and then we were in the pandemic and it all got too much and I burnt out. And so I backed off from the online courses as uh, and the people who had been buying them and enjoying them also backed off because they'd had enough because everyone <laughs> went so wild. Lots of us went wild for online courses in the pandemic and we needed a bit of a break. There was some online course fatigue. So they stepped back, I stepped back. And then I got my third book deal to write Raise Your SQ and I'd left London. So I, I wrote that book. Um, in Somerset. And then I launched a Substack eventually. Yeah, so now I feel like I'm writing nonfiction books. Um, my fourth one is being pitched out at the moment. And then I've got my Substack, which has become my kind of bread and butter. So I'm getting a monthly income from writing two to three articles a week that I share with the community I've built on Substack, which is is growing nicely. And then... Um, I ghost, yeah, I ghost wrote my first book in July and I've just yesterday went for an interview for the next one, which I haven't heard back yet. So we'll see. It's quite weird being interviewed. I'm so used to just working from home alone and being fully in control of everything. And when I'm pitching to be commissioned as a journalist or a nonfiction author, it's, there's not an interview process. It just, my words go out and they decide if they want them or not. Whereas this is like, me stepping forward as a person and seeing if they want to work with me it feels but it's fun I'm enjoying it so can you say a little bit more about ghostwriting because I think a lot more people became familiar with the idea of ghostwriting after the publication of Prince Harry's book and his ghostwriter J.R. Mullinger is is really interesting like a really interesting guy um his Actually, biography, The Tender Bar. I don't know if you've read it. No. Um, fascinating, fascinating book. But he talks about how with ghostwriting, you have to constantly remind yourself that it's not your book. And so when you're writing for someone else, how do you do that in a way that maintains the subject's voice without your own creeping in? Well, I think because I'm a journalist first, I'm very used to being in the interviewer's seat. And when I interview someone, I'm then capturing their words and their story and relaying it in an article. And it's the same with ghostwriting. It's very much um, the person's words. So someone who has someone ghostwrite their book is someone generally who's got really good ideas, really good story, a profile, um, but prefers, I think, prefers speaking to writing. And so they speak it out. And then I, as the writer, will um, record their words and then edit them into a story. So I'm very happy in the interviewer seat and I'm very happy to be behind the scenes. And because the, the, the first book that I ghost wrote, it's so much her story. It's like a memoir. It's not my place to own those words. I have, feel no ownership at all. And all I wanted to do was make sure that she felt comfortable with the way the story was written which which she is so it, yeah it feels really satisfying and also it's really interesting being a ghostwriter because you you interview the person however in person or on zoom or whatever and then you create this book you write it 50,000 words or whatever the next one if I get the next job it's 70,000 words so that's a bigger one 
and then you present it to them and then it's over to them to be the face of it and do the marketing you know or they have their team do the marketing but they're involved in promoting it on their Instagram feeds and things like that but I don't have any of that um side of it which is very exciting it's lovely having your face and name on a book and people celebrating that with you and reading your book and hearing the feedback but there's also something so nice about doing the writing delivering and then just hiding <laughs> and not having having any attention for it I, I like that I'm quite comfortable in the shadows I think um and then you talked about your substack, which is also really interesting and it's a hugely growing space it seems like loads of people I know are getting on Substack and like kind of once they get on it they say wow you need to get on it it's amazing um and what you wrote is I because you wrote an article about it you wrote on your newsletter um on your Substack um Mm. (laughs) and you said that um it offers a slower more sustainable approach um can you talk more about for someone who's listening who's a writer and looking to monetize their their writing can you talk more about what you're getting out of substack financially obviously without giving the details but also the other sides of it that you find beneficial yeah so i guess because i'd been creating online courses which was i they were often text based sometimes with audio so i would write a course and teach someone a new skill through this course. But with Substack, and Substack, I'm now bringing my online courses into Substack and giving people access because what's amazing about Substack is it's a completely free platform to use. You don't pay for any hosting. Like with a website, you have to pay yearly hosting and domain name. You have to pay to have your mailing list hosted on MailChimp or wherever you have it, Clavio. And whereas with Substack, it's completely free until you put a paywall in. And then if people start paying, Substack take 10%. So it's just, it's set up so perfectly for the creator to only make money if they earn money rather than constantly paying out, which is like amongst the freelance mums of which I'm one. And there are so many um, who I'm connected with through my book. We're all kind of trying to find ways to earn money around our kids. And you don't want to be paying out if you don't know that there'll be a return and you never do know. So Substack is set up perfectly for people who don't have loads of money to invest at the outset or any money to invest. What you do invest is your time and your ideas. So Substack is so based on the writing. It's You create a, a post on Substack and you publish it and it goes out to an email list. If you already have an email list, you can import it into Substack. Um, or if you don't, you can start to grow a mailing list there. And it sort of works like a social media platform. So uh, if if people start reading your articles on Substack, so the, you write an article, it will be mailed out to anyone on your email list, and then it will also exist on the Substack platform on your little corner of Substack. So mine is just under my name, Annie Ridout. And as people start to visit and like and comment, the algorithm picks up on that, and then Substack sends more people your way. So you have this kind of extra help, and you can add, you can write these articles for free and not add a paywall and just grow a community of people. So if you have a book coming out and you want to grow a community of people interested in the subject of your book, you could be writing a weekly article on the subject of your book and getting a bunch of people who are interested in them when your book is published, you put a link and invite them to buy it. But I put in a paywall because I'm treating it like journalism work where, again, all those articles that I might have been pitching out and some get commissioned, others I never hear back. 
now I get to write those articles every single week. I write something in the first person, like a personal essay. And then I, sometimes they're free to read, but often I put a paywall in just as it gets to like the juicy bit or just as it gets to the coaching exercise at the end, then people pay, can pay seven pounds a month and they get access to that particular piece of writing, but also all of my archives, including the online courses that I'm putting together and sort of coaching exercises. So it's become an online platform with everything that I'm able to offer. So my ideas through my writing and personal stories, which people seem to be really into. I think we really like a first person story that's not preachy and it's not um, telling you what to do. It's saying, I'm struggling with, for instance, uh, this transition I've made from London to Somerset. This is what's going on for me. And then I get a bunch of people who want to read it because they've also moved or want to move and they're trying to work out so they'll relate my words to themselves and hopefully find some solace in them or um, some ideas. But I, yeah, I love that Substack is the people who are reading Substack articles seem to love personal essays because that's such a, it's such a pleasure to just write your own personal stories. Mm. Yeah, I love I love your newsletter. Whenever I get it, I read it, and oh. there's things that you've written that because your writing style is very very i i guess the best word that i can think of right now is very pragmatic it's just no no frill and that appeals to me it's very kind of i love that and i really enjoy reading your work and speaking of new work you also have a podcast uh called home um can you talk about home why home and what the um podcast looks to explore yeah, so I moved from London, where I'm from and where all my family live, to Somerset, where my husband's family are from. Uh, we we decided to move. We wanted to have a different experience. I had a big panic just before we left because I was leaving behind my parents as they get older, my siblings, loads of nephews and old friends and work because a lot of my work, though I work almost entirely online if I ever do have meetings or interviews, they're all in London. So I had this big panic, but we decided to go ahead. My husband was very keen to make the move um, and we had um, committed to buying a house, this big sort of derelict house that he was going to renovate. He has renovated. And so we made this move and I, it's it's big deal moving with three kids. It's hard to build a new community, um, which you need to do so that you feel safe in this new place because we didn't have any family really nearby. And then they, I was homeschooling them while we made this move, but one of them wanted to go to school. So we ended up kind of getting them all into schools and nursery and building this new life. But I still, though I have loved this new life and have made the most incredible friends, this, we have managed to build this new community. Our life is very idyllic here in many ways, but I'm still a Londoner. I still miss London. I wonder if that's where I'd like to raise my children. So I li- have lived this life um, that I love. And then I also want to be at the same time living this other life, this alternate reality in London, which obviously I can't do. So we just have to decide if we're staying or or if we'll move back at some point. So the idea with the podcast, I wanted to interview other people because I'm fascinated in other people's stories of where they were born and raised, where they're living now, why they're there, how they're feeling, who they miss, um, what's going well for them. So I thought if I interview a woman each week about her story of home, I'll come to understand my own feelings more. And so that's what I did. I set up a podcast on Substack. Again, it's free to host. 
And it's really basic. I interview the women on Zoom. I do one interview a week and then I edit it on GarageBand and have a little like jingle at the beginning and the end. But it's just a really deep, honest conversation each week with someone who is also open to exploring what home means to them and how it feels. It's all I interview only women who aren't living where they were born and raised because I'm interested in this idea of can you create home elsewhere? Do you always feel drawn back to the place where your parents or carers raised you? Is that where your roots lie? Will you forever feel a bit displaced or a bit homesick if you're not there? So this is what I'm I'm trying to answer through these interviews. I really love that. And actually, that really resonates with me because as I said earlier, I am I'm Canadian, and, but I've lived in the UK for 20 years and I'm a British citizen now. But mm-hmm. my husband, he always says, well, don't, why don't you call yourself British? And I said, well, I don't really feel like I would be accepted as like if I said I'm British because of the way I sound. Um, but when I talk about home, I always, when I say that, I either mean like where I am physically in my house in London or Canada, because that's like where I spent over half of my life. So the concept of home is so, is so interesting, especially for people who, you know, like you're, you've been away from your kind of place where you've grown up for a really long time, where I go back to Canada and they, obviously the world has moved on. Canadians have moved on and they'll be talking about things. And I, I have no idea what they're talking about, but. So that's interesting too. And, and do you ever um, consider moving back to Canada? Um, I would love to, but like I have a I have a life here. You know, my son he's in school, and it would just be very complicated to move back. Um, but I love I love the idea of going back because we could have a really good life there. But we have a great a great life here, and. Mm-hmm. No, I'm feel really I feel really grateful for that. But yeah, that the idea of concept of home and what that means, uh, just really I think that's fascinating. And you've had one of my faves on the show, Karen Arthur. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I watched her make this move to to the seaside. I thought she was actually a Londoner and she did live in London for a long time, though she wasn't born there, I discovered when I interviewed her. But to see, for me, to see a Londoner leave London and her daughters are boasted in London um, and and go and live uh, in Hastings, I was really interested and excited by her making this move. But it's interesting when I interview different people, I'll interview one person like Karen, who's so pleased she's made this move and it's really like working out for her. Then I'll interview someone else and they'll say, no, I'm going to move back. And depending on what they say, it has a real effect on my mood and how I feel about my own life. So if they're really positive, I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And then if they say, oh, I'm going to go back, like Clover Stroud, I interviewed her and she's in the States and she's said, well, I'm, you know, we'll definitely go back in three years. And then I feel almost jealous that she's so sure she's moving back and she knows she's having this adventure, but she knows she'll go home. So it's interesting how it affects yeah. your body, mind, soul. And so that's available on your Substack. Um, and so for listeners who want to get in touch with your work, how can they find you? Where can they find your your substack? So my substack is annieridout.substack.com. 
And then I'm on Instagram at Annie Ridout. And that's it, really. And oh, well, my books are on my my website is AnnieRidout.com. And that's got a section for my books if they're interested in that. Great. If there is one thing that you would love to leave listeners with today, um, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. I think what's coming up a lot for me at the moment is the need to be really honest about how you're feeling, to talk and be open. And even if what the conversation you're starting is difficult for other people to hear, if you're feeling uncomfortable in your situation, as I do sometimes in my home situation, you can be honest about that. You don't have to pretend that you're feeling fine when you're not for fear that you will destabilize other people. I think there's there's always such value in vulnerability. And I think it's really important to not suppress your your real feelings. I love that. I think that's really important too. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you. It's been so lovely talking to you. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.